Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. The modern biography as we know it dates to the 18th century. Scottish author and lawyer James Boswell published The Life of Samuel Johnson, an account of a rascally Englishman who was a friend of his for over 20 years, and that became a kind of template that future biographers followed. Now we've all read our fair share of biographies, especially presidential biographies, to know that they follow a similar structure. This is especially true with the biographies of the American revolutionary generation. They're a kind of variation of what Joseph Campbell called the hero's journey. The protagonist begins his journey into the world. He triumphs only to fall before claiming a final victory and returning home near the end of his life. So how can we shake up this genre? And perhaps more importantly, how can we shake up biographies of George Washington, a man who seems at times opaque and beyond reproach? On today's episode, historian Alexis Coe helps us reimagine what a biography can be so that we can better understand George Washington and the world around him. Coe is the author of the new book, You Never Forget Your First, a biography of George Washington. And if the title is any hint of what's between the covers, this isn't your father's standard Washington biography. Coe is also a consulting producer on Doris Kearns Goodwin's upcoming three-part George Washington series for the History Channel. And this debuts on February 16, 2020, so be sure to check your local listings. Now, before we get started, a big shout out to our recent subscribers. Thanks for listening. We're delighted to have you here. And now, let's size up the thigh men of dad history with Alexis Coe. What was your path to becoming a historian? It's, it became intentional, but I don't think it was at first. Okay. I was an English major as an undergrad, and I was really into Irish literature. Of course, with okay. Irish literature, you really have to understand the history. Mm -hmm. But in order to get to those classes, I had to take survey classes. And before I knew it, I double majored. And <laughs> I loved history and wasn't really meant, wasn't, wasn't meant for the real world in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so I went to grad school and I knew I wanted to study American political history. But at the time, I was really interested in the period between World War One and World War Two, and what that meant for citizenship. And mm -hmm. so I studied women's citizenship. I studied women's citizenship during that time, and um, really loved it. But became sort of frustrated with how insular academia was. And I would go to conferences, yeah. and I would be so excited to attend a talk, and then it would sort of devolve into semantics, and there would be three people in the audience, mm -hmm. and you know, people would work on papers for years, and, and that would be it. They would stop there. Yeah. So at the time, when I get, uh, let's see, I got back from the Burks Conference, which is a conference for yeah. women historians, great dance party, but left me a little <laughs> sad. And um, I lived in Brooklyn Heights at the time, so I walked over to the Brooklyn Historical Society and, mm -hmm. and said, you know, do you have any use for me? I, I didn't pay for grad school, and I, I had some time on my hands. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, I didn't even know what they would offer me. I just wanted to do something else along with research. I fell in love. And yeah. it was also good timing um, for me personally, not good timing for America. It was during the financial crisis. And oh, yeah. the sure. Brooklyn Historical Society furloughed a lot of their employees. And so I got to do a lot of really interesting mm -hmm. work. And I was project-based, mostly unpaid. You know, I very quickly went from an intern to being a sort of part-time employee. My boss there told me there was an opening at the New York Public Library. And I went to interview for the job. 
um, on the fr- I, I didn't know though, you know, if I wanted to leave academia yet. Sure. I knew that I liked public history, but this is I, 2008, 2009. Public history is still sort of establishing itself. Mm-hmm. It's not really a known option at this time. I certainly didn't know what it was. I went into this interview with that attitude. Okay. And the person I interviewed with asked me what I thought of the exhibition that was downstairs, which was a mapping exhibition, Mapping the Shoreline. Oh, neat. That's very cool. And the New York Public Library has, in the Stephen F. Schwartzman building in yeah. Bryant Park, has incredible collections. I knew that as a researcher. And I also know that they have a lot of money to spend on exhibitions. Mm-hmm. But I thought the exhibition was boring. <laughs> And I really did, still didn't know how I felt about the interview, even during yeah. the interview. So when she asked me what I what I thought of the exhibition, I, I said what I thought. Yeah. And then she hired me. <laughs> and I, you know, I compared it to sort of leaping off a building. I didn't know if I would ever be able to get mm-hmm. back in. To academia or to To academia, to, to anything. I didn't know if this was sort of a career ender. Yeah. But I proceeded to have the most fun I've ever had. And I think I've had a pretty fun career. But those years at the NYPL were incredible. And I also um, expanded my idea of what I could study. Mm -hmm. You you focus so narrowly in graduate school, and then if you write a book, it's the same thing. Um, But what that told me is that I could go into any special collection, I could follow my interests, and I could figure things out. And if I wanted to to delve deeper, I Mm -hmm. could. I could become an expert. It would just, it, it would look a little bit different. So... Every exhibition you spend about two years on, and it's mm-hmm. sort of like getting another master's degree. Yeah, and so you've just felt like you had a greater freedom to pursue your own interests as opposed to being constrained by, say, well, tenure, for example. Yes. Or, you know, writing two to three articles a year, making sure that's in your dossier, writing a book, submitting the, the review, and then hoping and praying they give you a lifetime appointment. It was, it was freedom to research yeah. whatever I wanted, but... More than anything, it introduced me to public engagement. Mm -hmm. And I would sit in the Schwartzman building and I would watch people walk around the exhibition that I helped curate and see what they took an interest in and what they passed by. And then I would help consult with the education department, Mm -hmm. train docents. And I think that's where I began to consider different mediums for Mm -hmm. history. I think that was sort of the early lesson that I got in making history fun and also understanding that it lives in all these different worlds. Mm -hmm. So is that how you would define public history now or the way that you see it? I still think of myself as a public historian, even Mm -hmm. though I'm very much, I guess at this point, a for-profit historian because I'm not associated with any particular institution. Um, But yes, I think that public engagement Mm -hmm. is, is to me, public history. So I mean, that raises an interesting question, though, is, you know, as you say, you're, you know, scare quotes for profit because, you know, you're selling a book and -hmm. and that, uh, you know, drives revenue for you. But I mean, does it, do you have to be associated with an institution to engage with the public or think of yourself as a public historian in ways that, that might excite people about the past? No, I don't think so. I think that historians, whether they're in academia or outside of it, are working very hard to Mm -hmm. engage people in all kinds of different ways. And I think it's really important to have different kinds of historians trying to reach Mm -hmm. out. Um, And that's really the goal in mind. You know, when I sit down for documentaries, I'm I'm not paid for that. If I'm working on it like the Washington series, I am. 
Um, I, I, yeah, I still think of this as just trying to see what fits. Mm -hmm. Um, And certain stories are best told in different mediums. Um, And I still love curating exhibitions. Mm -hmm. I curated the ACLU Centennial last year, and it'll be a digital exhibition soon. Oh, cool. um, At the end of this month. And it's exciting to still play around with different audiences. Mm-hmm. Well, as you're thinking about these different audiences then, and, and as you said, you, you know, right now you're, you're focused on principally you know, writing a book or writing new books. How has that shaped your voice as a writer? Where did you find your voice as a writer? How did that come about? When you're in graduate school, you have to teach a bit. And um, you're most likely taking... You have to teach a bit, and you're teaching people who have to take your class. Mm-hmm. And you watch them text under the table, and you watch them kind of gloss over. And that bummed me out. Mm-hmm. And so I tried really hard to engage them and decided that, you know, I would take sort of some risks. You know, I would in, in that I would just be myself. Yeah. So I would make dumb jokes or... Um, tell them how I thought about history, compare it to something contemporary, get them to feel something about it so that it wasn't just this static thing on the page. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I thought of myself as a storyteller. I still didn't think of myself as a storyteller for years until this boss, Susan Rabner at the NYPL, um, I think three years into the job, started having me write everything. I always wrote exhibition panel, but she had me write the books. She had me write correspondence. She had me write speeches sometimes. Um, And she really told me, you're a good writer. You understand how to do this. Mm -hmm. I did not think so. Um, But I did start sort of submitting things, and I would be told my voice was too academic. I see. And it took a while to figure out how to navigate that. My first drafts are still really academic. Mm -hmm. I'm still constantly told that. I, I just, if you look at my work, it's accurate, it's right, but it's not written with the expectation that the reader will turn around and name every date and name mm-hmm. every person. What I want them to do is to get so excited that at a cocktail party, they're going to turn around and tell their friends about it. Yeah. Like, it's a really exciting story. And... That's my ultimate goal when I write anything. Mm-hmm. I want it to be correct, and then I want it to be fun. Even if it's, um, or I want it to be compelling because you can't make everything fun. Uh, but I, I, I'm trying to convey what it is that I love and stay really true to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that's something that needles me. It's something that disturbs me, or something that absolutely delights me. Yeah. I would imagine there's probably a direct connection then between the exhibits you're curating and thinking about how to excite people and get them interested in particular elements of an exhibit and what you're putting on the page now. And I realize that my background in exhibitions really influenced the way that I approach books. I I didn't really... I didn't think about... I think about the book as an object, but I didn't mm. really think that I was playing with the form until I looked at both books recently. And the first book that I wrote, Alice and Frida Forever, is it has visual components to it. And that was because I felt as if it was so unfair that I got to research in the archives mm-hmm. 
and I didn't get to show you anything. I, I would quote things, but you didn't get to see, um, you know, a receipt or a love letter and, and go through the same emotions. Obviously, you can't always block quote. Sure. It doesn't, especially with Washington, you know, it doesn't always convey what you hope it does. But there are enough opportunities to do so. And so with that book, it was, it was a bit of a visual exhibition along mm-hmm. with the text. And then with the Washington book, a lot of the charts and graphs that appear in it are things that I made for myself. Yeah. When I was trying to figure things out, when I was trying to present the material in a fun or interesting way, um, you know, these are these are as in, you know, they're just they're the way that I research and take mm-hmm. notes. Um, and then when I realized that I was going to try and force Viking to put those all in the book and hope that they wouldn't, you know, um, charge me against my advance for that. I presented them as an alternative to the traditional approach, Mm -hmm. which is that you put all the portraits and other information in the middle of the book. Sure. Where I don't really think it serves the reader. I want this Washington biography to be interesting for people who Mm -hmm. are experts But I also feel like the genre of presidential history, and particularly Washington studies, is alienating Mm -hmm. to people, shall we say, who are not dads, who are not white men. And I really want women and people of color to feel like this is a book for them, Mm -hmm. and presidential history is for them. And in order to do that, I needed to make them the expert, because everyone is as smart as us. They, They just don't know what we know. Sure. And I... In order to do that, I thought about the things that you always hear Washington scholars joke about it, you know, the symposiums here or in their books or on, on this podcast or, yeah. or wherever on um, Liz Coberts. Oh, yeah. And um, I thought about how I could convey that mm-hmm. and how I talk to friends and how I explain why I'm writing a, a book about yeah. George Washington. And I realized that there had to be what I'm calling front matter, um, at the beginning of the book, so all mm-hmm. these charts and lists and graphs. And then I also had to have something to situate the reader in each section. Yeah. So that by the time they were done, they felt like they were ready to take on a chapter. Mm-hmm. And I also was cognizant of things that are often relegated to to endnotes, to footnotes, but are really interesting. And yeah. I know that most people reading popular books don't read the, the yeah, don't dive into those. Yeah, um, which I mean, they're gossip columns, so it's, oh, yeah. it's exactly it's a mistake. But um, <laughs> sometimes the best stuff is in the footnotes. yeah, or the, um, the acknowledgments. My God. Oh yeah. So I thought, how can I do that? And then, um, in addition to the charts and the graphs throughout the chapters, there will be what I call you know interludes or breaks, sure. and um, there will be something about okay, we talk about we talk about Mary Washington as um, people have called her unlettered and all of these things. What did it mean for her? You know, we we know that she was not illiterate. We have letters yeah. that she wrote and received. Um, you know, but what did what did reading mean for her versus mm-hmm. Martha Washington? That doesn't naturally fit into the chapter I was writing, but I can have an aside, or you know, where I sort of I just have a random thought. I want the reader to consider. I don't even know if it's Right, but for yeah. instance, that you know, we look at Washington and we think that that he must have been um, Mary's pride and joy. I don't know. Maybe Betty was. If you think yeah. about it, that was a major accomplishment that she worked hard for. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see in Betty's actions so much of Mary, 
And so I wanted that to be a small, you know, box. So in, in a lot of ways, you're, you're trying to accomplish what um, one historian once described as troubling the narrative. Yes. Or, you know, trying to mess or disrupt our normal thinking about a particular subject's life and, and through various you know, experimentations with, with form and function, uh, get them to see something differently or at least in a different way. And I think that is... I don't know why it hasn't been done more, mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't know why historians don't have more fun in these books. Except that I, you know, I'm speaking from a position of privilege because I am not in an academic press, mm-hmm. and Viking views me as the expert, so yeah. they're going to go along with with what I say after a whole lot of convincing <laughs> um, to to get you know an an art an art director to agree with with what I'm proposing. Well, when you're you're looking at your shelf, as I, I assume as you began this project, you probably read a whole slew of Washington biographies. Some are, I think, doorstoppers is one mm-hmm. one word I think you used. You know, what was sort of were you just seeing so many commonalities and similarities that you sort of thought, what's the point of replication? You know, why why are they repeating the sort of the same old tired format again and again and again? I love presidential biographies. I read so many, and I will often read three or four Mm -hmm. general biographies at a time and see how they're in conversation with each other. With Washington biographies, I felt... I joke that people take an oath (laughs) that they have to (laughs) proceed in the same manner. Um, And I didn't get it. It really did seem as if they were following an outline. Why why do you think that is? I think it's quite challenging. Uh Um, I won't name names, but let's say a series editor for another president, one's called Washington Vanilla. Uh And we all know he's been called Marble Mm -hmm. a ton. And you look at the Washington Monument, compared to other monuments, I mean, it's strange to me because it's it's you know it's so stone like it's yeah. phallic it's um but it doesn't it doesn't give you anything the way the Lincoln Memorial does sure yeah yeah um or even Jefferson right down yes. the Potomac there yes or even the Washington and the the, the Masons envision oh, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> that's got a lot more emotion in yeah. it um it's quite frightening but it's 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 something <laughs> um so I think there is Big, there are big goals. Mm-hmm. Everyone comes, I make fun of them, but everyone comes to the project really earnestly. Yeah. But there's a reverence that they exude. Mm-hmm. And I don't love being called irreverent in in, in part because I, I wonder why we're accepting, why it's an anomaly and why we're accepting reverence. Sure, yeah. Because yeah. if you revere something, it's a bias. Yeah. Um, and and so I think that while they want to break him out of this, you know, marble mold or at least chip away at it, um, they they don't want to cause trouble, mm-hmm. um, and they want to show respect for Washington. I do too, but I'm not worried about Washington. I pose no threat to Washington. Yeah. He's everywhere. He's gonna be fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, so I but, think that's a part of it. Yeah, I mean, but do you, and do you think too that? Sometimes, well, you know, for example, you look at a biography of Adams or Jefferson and, you know, 
Adams is fun because he's so you know he he, he so always lets you know yeah. what he's thinking, <laughs> um, and and it was a great great deal of fun to be had with that. Jefferson, you know, he's thinking these high highfalutin thoughts, but then at the same time he's also a political animal, and so you can sort of latch onto that. With Washington, do you think that sometimes people, in addition to this his reverence, that they um, are they latching on to what Washington himself wanted people to see of him? Absolutely, but. As much as Washington tried to control his image and what he left behind, there's a lot there. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's pretty proud of being the town destroyer. That's meaningful. I do feel like there's an adherence to quoting the same things. Mm -hmm. It is a sort of checking box thing. Um, And what I often found was the stuff around the quote everyone used was more interesting. And what's a good example of that? Washington is the man who overcame a thwarting mother mm-hmm. in the traditional narrative. That's Mary, the narrative. Yeah. Yes. Mary Washington has sort of gone through everything over, you know, the years. But the one that stuck is that she really embarrassed him during the revolution. Mm-hmm. There's a de- As much as there's a defensiveness of Washington and of his masculinity and his virility and, and all of these other things, there is this tendency to go on attack when it comes to women. Mm-hmm. And Mary really, really gets it. What's strange about that is um, we, don't, we don't consider other perspectives, and we also don't look at other, other primary sources to quote. Sure. So Mary Washington, like many older people during the Revolution, and particularly in Virginia and where she lived, um, were struggling. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the state... Harrison, you know, was um, figuring out pensions. Yeah, oh, Benjamin Harrison. Yeah, yeah. the Forgotten Dynasty. And <laughs> <laughs> they they talk about giving Mary one. Everyone quotes this. They all claim that she sent this letter. She she didn't, yeah. um, which is amazing that, that that's not caught by more people because mm-hmm. the people who are reviewing the major biographies are pr- prominent historians. Yeah. And so I do feel like it's it's one of these things that everyone agreed to just go with. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only that, there's after she dies, we we hear things that tell us that Washington was wrong from him from his own mouth. Yeah. So in letters, he says, you know, actually the, her manager was terrible, and and I I actually understand why she was struggling. Why don't we allow him to be wrong about that? Mm-hmm. Why don't we consider that he was negligent as a son because he wrote to Harrison before he wrote to his mother to see if she was okay. Yeah. And I think that that is significant. It doesn't mean he's terrible. I'm not saying he's a terrible son. I think we all get annoyed with our parents and we sure. all, you know, get a little busy. <laughs> we're not we're not fighting the revolution, yeah. but you know, I I've not called back my mom for a couple of days now. Yeah. Um it's not it doesn't define me as a person. Yeah. It's okay. So do you think people are, are just sort of cherry-picking moments but then not following through? Yeah, and those yeah. are the things that break him out of the mold a little mm-hmm. bit. And, again, he'll be fine. We're not yeah. we're not worried about him. I, I also think that just giving specificity to things, you know, people would say that he was exacting. Um, what does that mean? Sure. What does it mean to – and why do I have to hear it described so many times? Just, just show me an example. Mm-hmm. And – you know, if you have an example of how he was towards the people he enslaved that really hits home, it should be used. Yeah. Um, and so Mary V. Thompson does this quite well in her book. Um, 
there was an incident in which Washington became frustrated that an enslaved man couldn't move a log all by himself mm-hmm. and slapped him. That tells me a lot. Yeah. And I think that's important for people mm-hmm. to read. Well, and it's an interesting example, too, because a lot of, you know, one of the questions that guests often raise when they come to Mount Vernon is, or not a, not a question, but it's more of a, a, a longing for confirmation. They'll say, Washington was a good slave owner, wasn't he? You know, yeah. what, is, what does that even mean? Yeah. Uh-huh. I was um I was at Andrew Jackson's historic home. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> and I was on a tour and immediately the tour guide was interrupted. Just just even introducing yeah. introducing the fact that Jackson owned slaves and the person who was on the tour, you know, said, I don't want to hear it. Oh, sure, <laughs> so, yeah. That's well then don't take the tour. Yeah. Um I don't want to hear it. Like he fed and clothed them. And the def- I think that that said so much about it. People feed and, you know, house their animals yeah. that they own and mm-hmm. they work. That doesn't mean they're off the hook. Mm-hmm. And we also know that Washington, you know, loved his ledgers. And yeah. he was... A penny pincher, except when it came to, you know, suits and carriages mm-hmm, and such. Mm-hmm. It's okay for us to know that. Um, it's okay to hear about enslaved people not being fully dressed. Mm-hmm. It just gives us a better understanding of who he was and the time period. Sure. And we can hold those things at once. You know, I don't subscribe to cancel culture. We, sh- we should understand this yeah. about him and also understand the great things that he did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and as you're thinking about, or as you, as you were looking at, uh, for those new entry points, you know, and when you began the process of writing this book and you're reading all those biographies and thinking about sort of the marble edifice, but also, you know, looking at, you know, call them flaws, but call them the more complicated uh, nature of, of Washington and his era, um, you've got this great sort of setup, I think, in the book it helps you get at, at some of those larger points. You call it the thigh men of dad history. <laughs> yeah. um, to be honest, I sort of chuckled the whole way through because it was really funny. Um, and it does, I think it serves, as you were saying, to sort of disrupt your mindset about um, about Washington and the way that we've written about him before. But and, and without sort of giving away everything, can you sort of give us a sense of who these thigh men are and what, what you mean by this? <laughs> a lot of bad jokes I make end up being published. <laughs> the The title was supposed to be a working title. The Thigh was a placeholder. I wanted to give these group of men a name that didn't have such a negative uh-huh. connotation as, you know, white men. Sure. When you say white men now, it means something very specific. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I wanted to... They are white men, yeah. by and large, but I w- that doesn't define them anymore. That being mm-hmm. a woman defines me as a historian. Sure. But they do share these obsessions and these proclivities. And one of the things that I noticed first off, you know, when I was just reading a few biographies and conversation, uh, Washington Alive, Ellis, um, a couple others, that they talked about his thighs a lot. <laughs> and they talked about it in these ways that felt like a little inappropriate to yeah. me and bordered on romance. 
and one of you know the Ellis says you know he 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 would grip the the sides of a horse and they would talk about his muscular thighs and then Chernow goes on and on about his thighs but also his jaw and how like it ripples and yeah. um what my question is what does that tell us about yeah. him it doesn't it tells us something about these men yeah. who are writing about him and it te- and I I think the books are too long. I think they they alienate mm-hmm. readers who who don't take pride in that. There's a certain certain type of reader I call them the size matters True. crowd who True. who really thinks that that is a, a badge of honor. I yeah. I don't. I think you make it through enough. You you really appreciate brevity. Yeah. Um, and also a lot of these you know. As a side note, uh, something like Eric Dunbar's book, um, uh, so many of Annette Gordon-Reed's books, they're not necessarily straight biographies, but they somehow manage to tell you the whole story Mm -hmm. while presenting a really interesting angle. Um, And so that was sort of a goal, too, to sort of integrate that into a formal biography. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I began to think of them as the thigh men. And it was sort of a a placeholder, and I turned it into my editor... um, at Viking and also my husband, who's an editor, who's my, you know, first reader on everything. And they both capitalized thigh men and took the brackets out. And they Uh thought it was really funny. Um, And then I just kind of left it in. Went with it. Yeah, and people react to it well. By the way, his, I mean, he had really nice legs, but so did Hamilton. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, I did sort of a survey that didn't make it in there. You know, they were, they were, they were athletes. I also don't know why we have to spend so much time on his body in these ways that are, that are sort of strange. Why can't we use a word like graceful? Mm -hmm. Um, Why can't we just say, you know, as as if someone you would see on the football field, I, I just think it's a little bit odd and, and I wanted to tease that out without attacking it in a way sure. because I do think there's room for everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm joining this conversation. Mm-hmm. They're dominating it. Yeah. Well, and, and as you said, you you talked about having charts and graphs earlier. I mean, you have a very nice little chart in there where some of these authors, the ways in which they actually describe Washington's physicality. And so, I mean, is it your sense, and I think you may have said this, that that it's less, when they're doing it, it's less of analysis of, of Washington as his contemporaries would have understood his physicality or his masculinity. It's more about the, the author's understanding or impressions of. It's this It's this reverence. It's, yeah. this, it's this great man hero worship. I do think his body was amazing, and yeah. I have a chart in which I talk about the diseases he survived. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. to me, is, is an interesting angle. If we read a book in which, um, let's say we read a book on Abigail Adams, uh-huh. and her biographers talked about her legs a lot or her yeah. clavicle or I don't, you know something that's we would find it very strange and we yeah. would comment on it and i think it's i think i think you can't just say um, you're not allowed to talk about women that way sure. i think we probably shouldn't talk about men that way either but again what does it tell us yeah. not a lot mm-hmm. it seemed like to me like what you were trying to do too was sort of make a commentary about you know the modern notions of men objectifying women and commenting on their bodies and and making that sort of the defining features of these people as opposed to, say, their intellect or their you know, contributions to charity or something of that effect. I think that's true. I, I'm just trying to figure out throughout the book where has the focus been and where could it have yeah. been. Um, and, you know, battles, for example. Sure. Everyone says that he lost more battles than he won, but then they talk about the battles yeah. nonstop. <laughs> 
I do think that's important. I think it's good. It's yeah. like a map to me, and I needed it. And mm-hmm. I then shared that at the beginning of the section on the revolution. But it's fall. You know, it follows mm-hmm. what I think is a more important chart. How did we win the war? Yeah, yeah. If he lost more battles than he won, and also he had the least amount of military experience, you know, there are so many questions that don't get answered mm-hmm. through, you know, all these. Also, he's in a tent most of the time. He's not out yeah. there fighting. It just it seems to me irrelevant. So at the before I have all these battles, I just have I just have a list of generals. Yeah. And I have American generals and British generals. And that becomes really clear that a part of yeah. his strategy or America's, you know, winning strategy in, in retrospect was that he was there the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another thing. I need to inform the reader about that. I need them to feel really confident in that. Then let's look at other things. I'm not the first person to talk about spying. Um, but let's talk about propaganda. Yeah. Let's talk about his personal life. We we complain that it's hard to get close to him, and I heard this also um, from in the writers room from the Washington series on the history on the History Channel that's mm-hmm. debuting later this month. Um, they kept saying, you know, what was his life like? You know, what did he and Martha talk about when she would come to camp? We don't know that, but we do know plenty of other things. We know mm-hmm. how his family fared. We know what happened at Mount Vernon while he was away. He was writing back and forth, um, and people like to talk about that as if it's some, like, beautiful escape for him. It's not. It, it clearly really stresses him out. And yeah. It's okay to also say that, you know, Washington strikes me as a deeply anxious person. Mm-hmm. Um and so I think I think that's a part of you know how I I, I approach things like that um, and and their obsessions. It's not just that I, I find them to be sort of funny. It's that they are great markers for me. If they're yeah. focusing on this, what else should I be focusing on? Well, I, and I think that is a good way to think about it too, because as you said, we can often get lost in sort of the nuances of the battles, where people think they have to talk about the battles all the time. And I mean, yeah, battles are important, but you know, I think one of the things you do in your book is you point out that he's actually very politically engaged at this time, in, in addition to sort of monitoring what's going on at Mount Vernon. I mean, he is working the rooms and, and figuring out how he's going to maneuver to successfully execute some of these battles that you that you very nicely summarize in a chart. Um, you know, much more of a kind of wheeling and dealing character and someone always in motion as opposed to simply writing correspondence in his tent. Right, and he doesn't get a lot of credit for that. And so I'm not just sort of, you know, presenting all these really challenging aspects of his personality. I'm also saying, yes, we talk about how he was um, self-conscious of his lack of education, and we talk about how he surrounded Mm -hmm. himself with good people. Um, Jefferson, you know, some shade that he threw (laughs) was that he he always managed to benefit from everyone else's work and sort of, you know, emerge unscathed from the bad stuff, which is sort of true. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I do think he had fun with these things. He enjoyed it. Um, He enjoyed crafting a story. He got all into spying. He, um, He knew how to win the war. He really understood how to work a room, as you said. Mm -hmm. Something that we all struggle to talk about with Washington because it's really hard to describe, and I think that's okay to say. And I I think I even, I ended up just saying, like, look, he was charismatic. Yeah. That is really difficult for us to understand Mm -hmm. with anyone, but hundreds of years later. We don't know how to explain 
why someone is charismatic. If, if we did, we would all be charismatic. Yeah, exactly. There are a lot of self-help books about this. Um, we'd all, you know, be my, if they worked, we'd know about it. Yeah, sure. So I think it's also okay to not spend 20 pages talking about, you know, how people were so impressed when he walked through the room. If we've already heard that 20 mm-hmm. times, you can just say people seemed really impressed by him. Mm-hmm. Then I think it's okay to go general. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I heard you use the word shade, and so I wanted to pick up on a, a line of thought that I had as I was reading it, and I wrote it down. And as you're thinking about how to unsettle the traditional biography, I was wondering how much um, millennial culture influenced the ways in which you approach the, constructing the biography and, and you know, presenting the compartmentalized information, the charts and graphs. You used the word frenemy. I saw that, um, and I had a good laugh at that. that. So how do... How does the age of social media, the age of Twitter, how did that help sort of shape the way in which you wanted to present um, your research? I think it did and it didn't. Okay. Um, I am barely a millennial. Mm -hmm. Not because I'm very young. (laughs) I'm on the other side. Yeah. And I... I think it's less about these names, you mm-hmm. know. I think that, again, I, I I dislike when people are at odds, yeah. you know. I think we can hold two things at once. So there's, you know, the tendency to say, okay, boomer. I don't think that's a helpful thing either. Because um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like the cancel culture. Right. right? It's just immediately dismissive and doesn't help you explain It doesn't anything. get us anywhere. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting to look at the way that people read and um, instead of bemoaning it or railing against it, think, okay, how can I meet some of these expectations Mm -hmm. while still staying true to a traditional form? And so the book, the most traditional thing about the book is it does move chronologically. But it does introduce all these other elements. And so I'm playing with both of those things. I'm I'm approaching it both ways. And how did you how did you approach Washington's relationship to slavery? You cannot talk about George Washington without talking about slavery. Right. That has always been true. But again, there's this defensiveness, um, and the way that people seem to work through it or make themselves feel okay with it or whatever it is mm-hmm. that leads them to again follow this path where I feel like it's a check mark. Billy Lee. Sure. The exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. But he's not presented that way. He's presented um, almost as as just the example we know the most about. Mm -hmm. And the impression you get if you don't read carefully is that perhaps it's an Ona judge situation where Billy Lee has always been there. Yeah. You know, that maybe Washington inherited him when he was a boy. Um, And that's not true. Mm -hmm. Billy Lee was actually like a relatively recent phenomenon when, when the war happened. And... Washington found him exceptional. Mm-hmm. Um, but but also, if we must say, you know, was fine to retire him yeah. um, when he could no longer work quite as hard. You know, it, when Washington became the president, there are different ways, let's say, he could have brought Billy Lee along, but, but it was easier to leave him mm-hmm. here and to, you know, replace him with someone who was younger and, and you know, more able mm-hmm. because Washington hadn't put him through all these yeah. things yet. Um, and so the way that I I do that is Billy Lee surely, you know, is present in the narrative when it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I keep slavery close 
throughout the whole book. Sure. There are not moments where it's like, and now slavery. Yeah. <laughs> it's there because that was his life. Mm-hmm. And so even when we talk about different titles that Washington held, president, general, master should be there. Yeah. And we just don't think about him being addressed as master very often, but he was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the only way I know to proceed. And as mu- and also, as much as I can, first Americans. Yeah, yeah. There are things that we learn, you know, Mount Vernon is a beautiful property. Mm -hmm. It was a working farm. It was a mansion house. It was also a forced labor camp. And we can say all those things at once. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is the most, to me, that's more truthful um, telling of Washington's story. I also feel like because people project these things onto Washington, they want him to be great. They want to to leave their biographies with a bit of hero worship. They romanticize and engage in a bit of magical thinking about what led him to pave the road to emancipating his slaves in his will. I don't, I'm not so cynical as to say that it was only legacy building, mm-hmm. but it's impossible not to consider that it was. Mm-hmm. Um, I read, uh, you know, you read these articles where they'll say, you know, Washington um, really started to think about the enslaved people as as people um, during the war because he he you know fought alongside. Yeah. You know, none of that's really true. Um, he had to. There was a good amount of pressure. Um, no, and I think we can just take take a step back and, and realize no, no slave owner wants to give their slaves weapons. Right. That's that's just a fact about slavery. It has yeah. nothing to do with Washington. Um, what did happen during the Revolution, which is a more interesting story, and some people talk about this, but not in detail, is that of course he met people like the Marquis de Lafayette, mm-hmm. who wrote to him a lot about this issue. So he was exposed to people who believed other things, who were wealthy men, Mm -hmm. which, of course, Washington was, you know, a social climber. He wanted to be rich. Um, Not because he he had heirs. He he, he just wanted that. Mm -hmm. It was important to him. Probably, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but probably because he struggled so much in his youth. You know, when he doesn't have, he can't go visit Lawrence because he can't feed his horse. That's significant. But someone like Lafayette writes to him for years and says to him, you know, we could do it this way. We could Mm -hmm. do it that way. And Washington writes back, you are such a sweet man. (laughs) Not as like a, you're so cute, (laughs) but just, you know, this says a lot about you. I'm so fond of you. Um, And I I think it's, it's, it's not so much a change of heart because he sees black people as fully formed humans, Mm -hmm. it's because he understands how other people see them. Mm -hmm. Because we still see incidences in which Washington says things like, you know, they just don't take pride in their work. Or, you know, he he and Martha will watch slaves race on, you know, the Potomac. Like, all these things that tell us that, like, there was still a real disconnect for him. Um, However, he got there, and that's important too, but it's also important to say that there's only one man he freed outright, Mm -hmm. and that is Billy Lee, and the rest gets complicated from there. I would say hold everyone accountable, and I try to see them clearly. Martha got a lot she didn't ask for. She suffered in similar ways to Mary Washington. You know, her life was one of loss. 
Um, oh, yeah. yeah. But, but Martha had choices, too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it seems that Abigail Adams was right in saying that Martha feared for her, feared for her life. Um, and, you know, she, she allegedly, like, you know, contacts Bushrod and, and says, yeah. I'm scared they're going to burn down the house. Um, this is after, after Washington had died. Yes. Yeah. And Washington is aware that he's going to separate families. He doesn't want to see it. He, I think he can't bear being responsible for that, mm-hmm. whether that's because of legacy, because of optics, because it really does break his heart. We don't know. Yeah. Whatever it was, we do know that he said that that was a problem for him. But by saying that Martha could either emancipate the enslaved people that Washington owned, not the Custis family, that that she could do so either upon her death or sooner, he put her in a lot of danger. Yeah. I mean, that was, as a husband not the kindest thing he could have done for mm-hmm. her. Obviously, I think he should have done it. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that's another thing that, weirdly, we don't talk about. I hadn't seen that anywhere. I had a couple conversations by phone with Martha Saxton, who wrote Mary Washington, The Widow Washington, yeah, yeah. Um, before it was published, which was a bummer for me that yeah. I didn't get to read it. <laughs> um, but we talked on the phone several times, and these were like one of the, you know, that was one of the things that we talked about. Um, she's not a fan of Martha. Yeah. I, I, you know, I don't think she's a saint. We think of her as this like older lady in a bonnet, and you know, she was real savvy. Right. Martha had choices. Yeah. It, it, all the enslaved people who were not a part of Washington's estate and were also not a part of Cu- the Custis estate, she had control over. They weren't a large number, but she chose not to emancipate mm-hmm. them. Ona Judge was her heartbreak. We, again, not trying to let Washington off, but if we can, and he got outraged at her, you know, Ona Judge's, you know, scare quotes here, demands. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Martha was the one who was so upset about that. So, like, let's let's look at her, too. Mm-hmm. She's not a saint. Mary Washington is not the devil, and Martha Washington's not, not a saint. Well, I mean, I think it goes back to what you were saying about trying to unsettle your notions about Washington and sort of the traditional story mm-hmm. we tell about them and the family because... You know, and even you know here at Mount Vernon, you know we interpret in 1799, the year George dies, and then but I you know a lot of ways most books sort of end there, uh, and then you know there's a coda maybe with with Martha and, and the and the issue about emancipating or not emancipating the slaves. But what if we take that seriously? You know, what does it look like? What does it tell us about the entire world in which they live if we actually pay attention to that for a moment? I think that a part of the reason all the books end there. Um, and a part of the reason they, being the thigh men, get Mary wrong and get Martha wrong is there's a real lack of curiosity about mm-hmm. women in early America yeah. and about what motherhood looked like. Abigail Adams was a lot harder on her children than Mary Washington was. Oh, yeah. yeah. Not all my children are swans. That's a, that's a burn. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, it... Speaking of endings, um, you made a, a very deliberate choice, uh, and I'm curious to, to hear more about it, uh, to end the book in the slave cemetery. Um, uh, you know, if, if visitors come, they can see Washington's tomb, of course, but then surrounding it are the, the unmarked uh, graves of enslaved people. And so as you were trying to come to an end, uh, how to figure out how to end this book in a way that would continue sort of the theme you've been developing, you know, troubling the narrative, um, how did you come to that, and how did you? How did you? What was the process of writing that ending? Almost all the Washington biographies end on a celebratory note. Mm-hmm. 
he emancipated his slaves, he lived on forever, you know, Washington was built, the city. Mm -hmm. Um, The country has kept certain precedents. All of those things are true. Um, But it was important to see the aftermath, Mm -hmm. the direct aftermath, before we had all this time to sort of figure out how we wanted to talk about his life. And so I walk everyone through Martha's last year. Mm -hmm. And then I list the families who were separated because Martha's heirs, you know, there were were several, and, and they split up her enslaved people, who, of course, had married some of Washington's enslaved people, and also just each other, the Custis slaves. Yeah. They were oh, also yeah. separated. It was yeah. absolutely heartbreaking and devastating. So after I get through that, there are just a couple paragraphs, and um, I ran it by so many people. I, I ran it by friends who were experts who weren't. Um, Bill Ferraro at the, at the Washington Papers, who fact-checked the book mm-hmm. and became a friend. Um, and there are two paragraphs that I thought were like really, really important as my final statements Mm -hmm. on this. One was that during the Civil War, so I do jump forward, during the Civil War, both Union and Confederate soldiers came to pay their respects, Mm -hmm. and because they were rolling through, to Washington's tomb, where he had been moved, and they engraved it because they both believed that he belonged to them, Mm -hmm. that he spoke for them, and they were both right. And that is, to me, Washington's legacy. While he did not avoid partisanship and all these other things, he remained, even during the Civil War, a sort of strange unifier. But then you can't talk about that without saying that nearby, which Mount Vernon has done great work Mm -hmm. of late on the cemetery of the enslaved people, you can't say that that's not there too Mm -hmm. if you're going to talk about, you know, Martha and other people who are buried with Washington. And you also have to say that he never mentioned it. Yeah. Washington knew every inch of this property. He kept tabs on everything and he never mentioned it. That shows a lack of curiosity and uh, about the people he enslaved. And, and again, it, it makes us think about his final act mm-hmm. and what that really meant. And it, in a lot of ways, too, it sort of symbolizes the fact that you know, Mount Vernon was built on slavery and, you know, uh, Washington ended that way. And then they sort of remained so in depth at the same time. And embracing that narrative is really good for Mount Vernon mm-hmm. the way it has been really good for Monticello. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I guess in, to build off that question then or off that discussion, you know, we're in a, a pretty divisive political moment right now. What would you hope people take away from this book in this political moment? A lot of things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of things. Ostensibly, I want people to be interested in presidential history because it is relevant to our lives today. Mm-hmm. The founder has come up an awful lot particularly in this political climate, shall we say. And they're presented as a monolith. Mm -hmm. And as if they all got along and um, were supernatural beings who were able to see into the future. And so everything they wrote should be respected and treated as if it was prescient. Yeah. 
to sort of plagiarize myself, a couple years ago when Trump was first elected, I wrote um, something for the New York Times Magazine. They have a, a fun column called Letter of Recommendation. Mm-hmm. And I recommended presidential biographies. And actually focused on a biography about Chester A. Arthur. This is early, <laughs> everyone's favorite president. Yeah. Um, because everyone definitely knows he was a president. <laughs> and the reason he came to mind is, you know, you saw a lot of people talking about, like, Dewey versus Truman and all these um, surprising upsets. But yeah. to me, in just a really, just a fleeting moment of optimism, I thought, look, Chester E. Arthur was as corrupt as they get. Yeah. He, you know, happened into the presidency as an ex, you know, by way of an assassination. And he became a different person. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's one thing to consider is that people can change, which obviously that was like ridiculous. Um, but the main point that I wanted people to get is the reason it's helpful to read presidential biography is Chester A. Arthur and his 70 pairs of pants aside. <laughs> and two shirts, I don't understand how it worked. Yeah. I would have gone the opposite direction. You would think so, right? I mean, yeah, particularly in Virginia in this climate. Um, <laughs> but what I wanted people to understand is things seem like they're a mess right now. Mm-hmm. But they've always seemed like they're a mess. Yeah. And it's important that we feel this way and we feel panic. That's the point. If we're going to claim the founders thought anything, it's that they... they fought for what they believed in and they worried about our democracy becoming decaying and the you know there were all these threats that they saw and one of them was um well just about everything we see people vying for power not um not caring about their constituents not not caring about actual americans um foreign interference um partisanship it always seemed really scary, yeah. and that doesn't mean that um, we should accept it, but it, it, it also doesn't mean that we should talk about it as if this is the downfall of America, mm-hmm. which was definitely my perspective in, let's say, college during the second Iraq war, but yeah. was not, it just doesn't, it doesn't track when you look at American history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you know, less, um, there's no Edward Gibbons' fall of the Roman Empire here at work. No, no. I mean, I could be wrong. <laughs> Let's knock on some wood. <laughs> but I think that we could all um, take a breath and yeah. and just and and realize that um, there are real consequences, mm-hmm. particularly if you look at this president and many other presidents, where you know the next generation will definitely suffer. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't mean that on a whole this will be the worst time in American history. We we might not have seen it yet. I mean, yeah. let's get pumped for that. Exactly. <laughs> let's get really excited for that. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Mason Shelby was our sound engineer. Our theme music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.